to Deviant Women, episode two. Hooray! I'm Lauren. <laughs> and I'm Alicia. Um, and we're your hosts for Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about our favorite women from history, mythology, uh, fiction, and... Contemporary women. Contemporary society. Huzzah! That's what we do. <laughs> That's what we do. I like it. That's all good. we do. Yeah. We're just... Oh, and, and we... what we also do is we... We drink. drink. That sounds <laughs> awful. No. Today, what are we drinking? Today, we are drinking rum. Rum. We're drinking Kraken rum. Spiced rum. Spiced rum. Mm. Um, surely, we should get some kind of royalties or something. For like <laughs> Maybe one day. Other when people's products. There's rum? more than seven people listening. We can. I like these seven. Seven. Seven's, seven. seven's the default number for who's listening. S- yeah. Seven. 17, once we get bigger, it'll be 107, that'll be 7,000. It'll be 7,000, that'll be 7 million. Yeah, wow, not ambitious at all. When we get to 7 million, that's when we're going to be raking in the rum royalties. <laughs> the rum royalties, bam. <laughs> um, let's keep rum in mind for next week. Yeah. I don't want to skip ahead too much. But thematically. But thematically, we should actually be drinking rum next time around. We should have saved the rum. But that's okay. But rum, will, think about it, it feeds forward rum. Yep. But that's not what we're talking about no. today. Although we are talking about a woman who did like a little bit of the drink. She did, says me swallowing mine. Um, she was into the drink. So should we just get on? I think we should crack on. Okay. So please, Alicia, won't you tell us who is your deviant women today? Deviant, who is my deviant women your deviant today? women. Uh, that was a half E, half A that I slipped <laughs> between. It was. Um, well, by way of introducing her, um, I might give you just some context for how I came across her good. in my life and world. Can yeah, I good. Do that? Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Excellent. A sure. little bit of biography. So this is my bio, a bit of my own biography. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, why she became uh, a bit of an interesting deviant woman for me. It's because uh, many years ago in my crazy, crazy youth, it's crazy. When you were a tiny slip of a thing. That's right, when I was a tiny slip of a thing. And I was heading off into the big wide world for my first trip overseas. Mm. Backpacking? Uh, backpacking, of yeah. course, yeah. Obligatory European backpacking yeah. trip. You can't. That's what you do when you're in Australia. I was going to say, you can't be a middle class Australian and not. That sounds elitist. I keep doing this. You do. You're being so elitist. Stop it. Yeah. Um, but it's the dumb thing is to go for a bit of backpack around Europe. If we can. If one can. That's the influence of the rum talking mm-hmm. there. Um, so about to head off and doing the thing where you read through a bunch of travel journals and articles and um, reading through one such thing. Uh, <laughs> um I came across a quote, and this quote really stood out to me. I'd never heard of the author before, but I was quickly to be... Enamoured? Enamoured? Yeah, enamoured of her. Um, And I'll just read to you the quote. Mm -hmm. 
One right to which few intellectuals care to lay claim is the right to wander, the right to vagrancy. And yet vagrancy is emancipation, and life on the roads is liberty. One day, bravely to throw off the shackles with which modern life and the weakness of our heart encumber us, in a pretense of liberty, to arm oneself with the symbolic staff and bundle and run away. For whoever values the delights of solitary freedom, and true freedom depends on solitude, the act of running away is most courageous and most beautiful. Selfish happiness, perhaps, but happiness indeed for those able to appreciate it. To be alone, to be poor in needs, to be unknown, a stranger and at home everywhere, and to march tall and solitary towards one's conquest of the world. Oh, fucking love that. It's good. It's, it's good. So good. That, oh, it just it encapsulates, I think, really so much of what travel is to me. I mean, we're both... Co- it's a conquest of the world. It it's is. It's a conquest. And that whole thing about, yeah, it is selfish, like she says, but it is about that, you know, it's, it is a bravely... It's like setting out for this sense of freedom to be and to be yes. alone and, and to be alone. And it's about that. It's a bit. It's about that. That solitude yes. as well. It's about that sense of, um, yeah, bravely going out on your own to explore. Yeah, and, and not even, relying on anyone and not having anything in your possession. That's right. You yeah. really, you know, yeah. You realize how little you need in the world yes. to get by. Yeah. And you are, and that idea um, as well of being a stranger and at home everywhere. It's yeah. that idea that um, you know, your home is where you kind of make it. If even if that's a hostel bed for a night, yes. or a, you know, it or, is, and it is, but it's so true. And I think that as women who both have travelled a lot and continue to travel, like that is for me the essence of it. And it's just that encaptures it so beautifully. Yeah, and but the significant thing about it is. When it was written? Yeah. So the significant thing about it is that I haven't even said her name no, yet, I don't yet. think. This is a serious so, woman. It's written by a woman called Isabel Eberhardt. And um, that little snippet would have been written in about the late 1890s. Yeah. So like 1898, 1899, around about that time period. So it's like about 117, <laughs> 18, yeah, something like that years ago that um, – that kind of language and that idea of as a as a woman mm, mm. heading out into the world and that's still resonates that's like let's be honest i feel like we're only just really coming into I, well not we have been i guess for the last probably 20 years or so where it is socially normal and acceptable for women to travel and even the whole idea of women traveling alone is still something that's shrouded in all of this kind of like danger and like you know oh watch out oh you're a travel woman traveling alone or there's like you know blogs and books devoted to teaching you how to navigate the world as a woman traveling alone absolutely and she did this 120 years ago that's right when most women who were traveling or a lot of women who were traveling um, and of course, I mean, it's a cultural thing as well, but you would travel with a, a bit of an escort, you know, oh, or yeah. you would travel with yeah. other people, yeah. be they family or friends. You always would have a chaperone. Yeah, As exactly. a European woman yep. traveling, you would for sure have a chaperone. Yeah. And so Isabel Eberhardt was not that woman. She no. was a different woman. She led a very different life. So tell me about where where she began. How how do you end up being Isabel Eberhardt when you were born in the 1870s 
in Europe? Yes. How do you become this type of person? That's an excellent question. That is an excellent question. Um, and I will endeavor to answer it for you, Thank shall you. I? Thank <laughs> so, you. Please do. Uh, yes, I shall. Um, so she was born in 1877 and she was born in Geneva in Switzerland. And um, already she comes from a bit of an un- unorthodox sort oh, of family Unorthodox, history. eh? Funny you should say that word. Funny word. I should say that. Because wasn't her father a Russian Orthodox yes, priest. priest? He was a Russian Orthodox priest, quite right. Um, to begin with, he was, anyway. Um, but she... So he was actually... Her, well, she was an illegitimate child, mm. let's say that, to begin with. So her family history is that her mother... Um, was a German, Russian, Jewish um, aristocrat. <laughs> and um, yep. Natalie um, Demodeur. And she was married to a Russian general mm. living in St. Petersburg. And then um, we have this fabulous character of um, Alexander Trofimowski, <laughs> if that's... Um, if that's how you say his name. If that's how you say his name. We're going to go with that. We'll call him Alexander because it's easier to say. Old mate Alex. Old mate Alex. Um, he was Alexi. Alex. Can call him that? I'm sure. It's not, that his, not, it's not his was name. bad? Yeah. I, I not, don't know. I just assume that's the Russian shortening. No, I, I think we won't do that. I think <laughs> we'll just go that. with Alexander. Let's not do that. Um, but we, will, we can shorten other people's names. Floco. Um, <laughs> now, Alexander was the tutor to mm. Natalie's mm. children, who she had yep. with Russian general. I have a feeling I know where this is going. And... Well, I do, because you've already told us. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yes. <laughs> so, um, Alex and Natalie take up together, and they basically run away together to Geneva, and they shack up together in Geneva. Um, she takes her children, from the children from the general with her as well. Oh, really? Yeah, and um, she basically just hightails it over there with him right so while uh, living in Geneva they well this is the thing right so before Isabella Izzy we'll call it Izzy Izzy, Izzy before Izzy comes along there's another child Natalie has another child um, called Augustine and now the Russian general yeah um, sort of claims that child as his like he's happy to take on the parentage of that child but it's probably actually Alexander's. Mm. And did he know son. that? Alexander, the, the Russian general. The Russian general. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Russian yeah. general did. The Russian general died shortly after Augustine this boy was born. He was quite a bit older than he her, wasn't was. He was. He was 40 years older than Natalie. Which is pretty gross. Um uh, so oh, can you imagine? No, no, let's you. not imagine. But fortunately, it's really he, not imagine. Fortunately, how mean? Um, but oh, well, fortunately for the story, he mm. um, quite conveniently dies quite soon after Augustine is born. So yep. he's out of the picture. That's great. And then um, following on from that, um, Isabella is born not that long after. Yeah, because Eberhard is her mother's name. That's right. Correct? So she takes um, she takes her mother's name. And is that her mother's maiden name, not her name of the general? That's a very interesting question. One that I cannot answer. Right. I wouldn't... I don't know, actually. No, I don't think so. Because she was married to the Russian general. So, who can say? <laughs> somebody could, somebody we else. We could look up the could, name of the Russian could. general. We could look up the name That's of the Russian general. That's something that we could do. Um, well, she was a Prussian. Prussian, Prussian general. Even. Um, but, so, she 
and Alex um, are sort of living on the outskirts of Geneva, really. They're kind of keeping on the lowdown because not only has she sort of abandoned Russian general, um, who's... You know, name yeah, we may nobody knows. We may never know. What his <laughs> name was. So they're kind of on the lowdown because not only has, as I say, has she run away from her husband basically, but Alexander, the tutor, also has a wife and children that he's left behind in Russia. Eberhardt is her maiden name. P.S. Because ah. Demorder is the general's. Oh yeah, we've already said Demorder, yeah. haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. We already said that. So that answers that unnecessary question. It does. Except interesting that she gave her child her maiden name. We had already answered that question for ourselves. We weren't listening to ourselves. No, we weren't. That's what rum will do to you. (laughs) So very interesting, as you say, that it's actually the maiden name. Yeah. Mm, Deviants all around. around. So, But this is, I guess, the the important thing here is this kind of sense of an unconventional, already subversive beginning to life. Absolutely. Geneva with her parents who are not married. Yes, correct. Because, because he has a, still has a, a wife and children back in Russia. So they're living on the DL yes, in Geneva. On the DL. Yeah. In this unconventional house where he's he's like an anarchist. Yes, an he is. So as we said, he was originally a Russian Orthodox priest. However, he kind of throws that all in and becomes a total atheist. Um, and time kind of instills into Isabel this sense that she should rebel against authority. She should rebel against religion. Um, she should, yeah, that she should basically question all of these sorts and, of... And he really believed in, like, educating women as he well. He did. He did. And he educated Isabel at home. He had educated all the children at home, obviously, because he was the tutor. Yeah. But um, educated... Isabel knew something like six languages. Which is insane. Yeah, that's totally crazy. insane. But not as a, I mean, as a child, did she? I mean, I, I imagine she would have grown up speaking Russian and German, French, French. Yeah, and so by the time though that she's a teenager, she can speak also. Yeah, she can speak German, Latin as well. Oh, wow. Um, and she's already started to speak a bit of Arabic that's too. That's crazy. So being able to speak a bit of Arabic will lead forward into mm. things that we shall speak of. Soon. That we shall speak of now or um, later. <laughs> soon. Okay. So um, just sticking with her unconventional childhood. Yeah. So as I say, they're living in this villa that's sort of on the outskirts of Geneva. And Geneva at this time is a bit of a like a melting pot of intellectuals. And it's a refugee city for sort of exiled intellectuals as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Isabel goes out into this world and partakes of it. However, she does so dressed as... A uh, boy, and it's interesting. Is that her choice to enter the world just as a boy, or because this is, from what I understand, this is not a question of gender identity. She didn't, you know, she didn't associate herself with being a boy. This no. is a way of her being able to maneuver herself in, in the world that she wanted to. Exactly. She didn't. Nec- yeah, she didn't identify as being a male, mm. but she dressed like a male and. To begin with, I mean, this is something she does throughout her whole life, but to begin with, it was a sort of a practicality thing that her family or her, predominantly her father sort of thrust upon her, I suppose, yeah. was that in order to go outside, I guess for protection and that sort of thing, in order to go outside into the world, she had to dress as a man because there was plenty that she 
couldn't do as yeah. a woman and that was closed off to her as a woman. And this was also part of her life later on as well when she moves away from Europe that this idea of dressing as a man opens doors to her that are completely shut to her as a woman. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> Deviance numero uno. Correct. Numero Cor- numero. But that's several fine. languages. In it's there. all good. Just mash it together. We're good at that. That's what I'm doing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where she begins. But even at this stage of her life, um, in some of her early journals, she writes about how she finds Geneva quite stifling and narrow-minded, and um, which is interesting for a city that's, you know, apparently the city of intellectuals. Quite, quite intellectual at the time. Yeah. So imagine but not good enough for her. Yeah, imagine how she would have gone in a, a city that's even more, like... <sighs> yeah. Restrained, conservative. conservative. Yeah, exactly. So at this time she started to write, and she's also starting to get some stories published as well. Yeah, now this... This kind of really intrigued me because her yes. first published short story is about a man who falls in love with the corpse of a woman. Correct. He's a medical student. <laughs> so that kind of, that's all right, isn't it? Oh, y- y- Medical students are allowed to fall in love with women's corpses. Normal people know, but if you're a medical yeah. student, sure, totally fine. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's already, that's quite outside oh, the norm. Oh, man. Can yeah. You, yeah. And her second short story that she has published is about male homosexuality. Which, I don't know, again, she's a young person entering the world looking like a young man. Because women, when they dress like guys, tend to look like young, quite young, beautiful men, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's an element of, like, maybe she got hit on by dudes who thought she was a man. (laughs) Maybe this inspired, or maybe she was just yeah. fascinated by this world that she was kind of traversing, but didn't really kind of belong yeah, to. Yeah, actually, that's a very interesting point. Because mm. I mean, so the, her first short story was published in 1895. So that makes her what? That makes her 18. 18. Fuck. Oh. <laughs> I like it. I like your anger at that. But also, she published under a pseudonym, correct? She did. So, um, yes, which is. <laughs> so unheard of for a woman to have to publish under a pseudonym but so yeah her first writing she did publish under the name of nicholas podolinsky 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 mm. um did she continue to publish as podolinsky she did for quite some time yeah. yes yeah so i want to go back to augustine because augustine um plays an important role in where her writing goes from here this is the brother this is the older brother so he has joined the french foreign legion of course. Um, which is what everybody does and he's been stationed away to Algeria, um, which has sort of been colonized by the French since like the early 1830s. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and she tells him to write to her. So she, he sends back letters, which she sort of devours his letters. And at the same time, she's also um, writing to um, a soldier who's um, advertised for a pen friend in the local paper. <laughs> That's cute. It is cute. But I think that was relatively common, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah, to just write away and just want to have But somebody... this obviously worked out really well for her because she's kind of mining these letters exactly. for insights. Yeah, so everything she gets back, um, she puts together into a story that she has published that is entirely set um, uh, in and around sort of the religious world of North Africa. And it's very well received. And she's quite kind of 
um, acclaimed for having written so beautifully and so accurately about North Africa for someone who's never actually been there. Which is pretty – she's just this – yeah, she's this person who kind of exists on the periphery of all of these worlds and yet seems to have all this insight. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, like, for a lot of that, she's also stolen it. I th- I yeah, from, and I wonder – because I was just thinking about that. I mean, I wonder how much of this is – genuine insight and how much of this is wrapped up with ideas that already existed that she's just kind of very easily able to run with you know like well like does her writing reflect colonial orientalist versions of north africa so they're they're definitely at this stage was a big um surge in orientalism yeah and in that sort of idea of romanticizing uh well for, for europeans for romanticizing sort of the the Far East and yeah. the and Africa, and I mean it's in it's in the art that's in like absolutely. everyday like and, yeah. and not even art it's not fine art even it's it's middle class like yeah. it's it's the type of art that's hanging on people's walls it's in their china cabinets it's on yeah. their vases it's absolutely just a kind of yeah this and it is an in a romanticized othering version of the mystical East right I like the way you said that. <laughs> you pull that together nicely. Yeah, it was good. And it's true. It's perfectly true. So, but the other thing as well is that when she was young, um, Alexander, going back to old Alex, mm. he also spent some time reading the Quran with her as well. So yeah. she kind of already has um, a bit of an idea around the sort of religious concepts. Yes, but she, in that sense, she probably does have far more insight than most of her contemporaries. Mm. That's right, says me. <laughs> Choking on some rum. Um, so what happens is the, this writing, um, which seems to be so perfectly reflective of um, the North African sort of subcontinent, takes the eye of a photographer called Louis David. And he invites her to come and stay with him in Algeria. Oh, a Louis. Louis. And he invites Isabel or he invites Nicholas? He invites Isabel. Yep. Yep. Isabel Zivuman. But Zivuman. Why did I say it like that? <laughs> why did I say Zivuman? <laughs> yes, Zivuman. Um, so she heads off, um, but she heads off with her mother as well. And so there's a bit of... Yeah, there's a bit of speculation as to why her mother went with her, be it because her mother was had sort of failing health or because um, her father was also a little bit crazy at this stage. Uh, yeah, so. so I can imagine that a dude who's gone from the extremes of being an Orthodox priest to an atheist, somebody who is reading, I would I imagine quite broadly the kind of stuff that he's reading, it's probably not hard to imagine that eventually maybe you start to become maybe paranoid. So anyway, she goes with her mother to stay. And could you imagine like crossing, like crossing over on the boat mm. from Europe to Africa as well? I mean, it's not that far. No, it's not. But I mean, just that for, so she's all of what, 19, 20 yeah, at this stage. Yeah, that's true. Um, I suppose that, plays into this idea of travel, of exploration, of that vagabond, like just being on the cusp. Yes, that sensation of like being on the ship and seeing this landmass. Exactly. Yeah. Appear on the horizon and it's just such an unknown space. That's right. And some sense of destiny awaiting yeah. you there. And that actual, and life. that physical journey, like 
being significant of crossing a body of water. Yeah. Really is like entering into a new space. Absolutely. And to think that like the difference between Europe and Africa is just that, yeah, like that body of water that is there. Yeah. But then. Yeah. yeah geographically not geographically that far, not that far away. away. But culturally massive. Worlds apart. Worlds apart. So she arrives and they stay with um, the Davids. However, Isabel and her mother are much more interested in um, the Algerian locals than they are in the European colonial um, families that live there. Quite segregated. Yeah, and I can imagine that for the French who were there, that's probably not what you'd normally do. Like you wouldn't no, be fraternizing no, with the locals. No, absolutely not. No, and they do. They fraternize. That's a, they fraternized. She did a bit of fraternizing. Yeah, didn't she? we're making oh, that. We she did. Is we're, he? we're making that sound quite sort of sexual right away, but I, <laughs> I don't know. But she does fraternize. Yeah. Ooh, she fraternizes. Yeah. <laughs> well, because what? So what happens here as well is that um, she kind of continues on this dressing as a man mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. um, having discovered that back at home this is how she sort of um you know can become part of the wider community or the wider society that she can't as a woman she finds the same thing here in our in algeria but, as the, well. mate, but the difference here is that she's not she's not dressing as a european man is she no she's not she's wearing a bonus oh i hope i'm saying that i say that saying that in a rather french fashion which i think is unnecessary well, french algeria maybe and she wears a turban as well yeah. so she's she's taking on the cultural attire and, as well not just the gendered attire and, and so we've got she's making a few crossings here Her a crossings, few crossings. So many crossings border crossings she's crossing uh, gender wow well, i said that boundaries <laughs> she's now crossing cultural boundaries but she also religiously is also starting to become more involved in islam yeah so at this stage her mother converts to islam and she kind of takes on islam as well she doesn't actually ever um officially convert to islam but she takes it on that's she she does convert to islam in but, everything but like official doesn't go through some whatever the yep. official thing is that you need to do that's right she doesn't do she whatever doesn't that, do that is. bit. but she otherwise lives her life as a but as a Muslim man, yes, absolutely. I find that so fascinating because I wonder how, and I know so she, how how was she received in this society? She's like she's a white European Orthodox Jewish woman, right? A turned atheist who appears in Algeria dressed as a man, mm. starts dressing like a Muslim man. And yeah. starts behaving like a Muslim. Like, how did how did real Muslim men feel? I mean, I think today, if you were to do that, there would be very interesting discussions that may arise. <laughs> that would like, be had. There would be so there's so many things that we would say about somebody doing this now in so many different contexts. Yeah, words, words, words would be said. <laughs> um, I don't think you could get away with it as a woman. So today. Yeah, well, in the, some of you know. The and, interesting thing was that she didn't necessarily get away with it as a woman then either. And what I mean by that is that she was highly convinced. So in her writing, she seems to be highly convinced that she had everybody fooled, mm-hmm. that people thought she was a man, right? But many of her contemporaries and a lot of biographers since 
Um, I've pretty much just said that, you know, people just humoured her. <laughs> She's basically being humoured. And I wonder if they even knew... Like, is that humoring just simply coming from the fact that they don't know who, what this is? Yeah, and how, like do, how, do, how do you even call anybody out on that? How yeah. do you call her out on that? She's this alien creature. So what do you do? <laughs> you just smile and nod and, and stare aghast, yeah. right? Okay, you're a man. Sheila. Or maybe otherwise you, I don't know, murder them or something. I don't know. Well, maybe you do. Maybe maybe you do. <laughs> but um, no, she doesn't get murdered. Um, but there was an attempt on her life. Yeah, but coming later. Though, coming so, later. Yeah. yeah. So she also changed her name at this point as well to um, Mahmoud Sadi. Mm-hmm. So she takes on a masculine name as well. Um, and I guess when you introduce yourself as that and you dress that way, I mean, yeah, are people people don't. What are they going to do? They what are they going to do? Yeah, they're just going to pull your. <laughs> Pull your robe up and have a look <laughs> underneath. Um, but interestingly, she took a lot of lovers at this time. Well, as I was well. going to say, so, so people did pull their robes up, right? They did. Like, they she's did. kind of infamously not celibate. Like That's she's, right. And so she converts. Right. So she. So we're saying she converts to Islam, which she does do. And then she but she's a not a bunch very, of stuff. She's she, not a very good Muslim. No, she's not. So <laughs> she smokes a hell of a lot of hashish. Yeah. And um, drinks. Drinks, drinks a lot, a right? lot. <laughs> She's basically a drunkard. Yeah. Um, and she does all of this, and she goes to brothels. And <laughs> but when she goes to brothels, she's as an as goes as an observer. Yeah. So she's just going to check it out. She wants to learn. She's that's a right, seeker, man. She is, and one of her um, published works is called The Oblivion Seekers. It is, of course. Yes, it is. It is. Um, yeah. And and that's all about. Kef smoking and hashish. And, and so really what she is, is she is a freaking hippie. Yeah. A hundred years before it was cool. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's an out, early hippie. She's setting out on her journey, smoking dope. Yep. Couch surfing, hanging out with yep. people, sleeping around. Totally. Partying yep. it up. Yeah. yeah. And, and, when then, she's, and when she's sleeping as, around as well, um, and when I say she goes to brothels and stuff too, even though, so cross-dressing doesn't automatically mean that she is homosexual. No. Because she's not. And there's no sort of accounts of um, her being homosexual. Yeah. All of the accounts of her and her sexual sort of promiscuity is with men. Yeah. So, again, this is not a gender identity issue like thing. This is really um, – this is the most – this is the way that I have to present myself yeah. in order to enter the world that I want to enter. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. In order to have be able to go past those doors and into those yeah, worlds. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess as as it was back in Geneva, it's still a matter of practicality. It's still mm-hmm. a matter of just being able to, you know, have access to things you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. So, in this kind of world, um, yeah, she does kind of make it. A bit of a name for herself, which I think also probably adds to the fact that people would have known that she was a woman because um, she'd be quite infamous sort of locally. Yeah, I can um, imagine in the desert. Yeah. And so ten ten. while she's while she's sort of in Algiers in the first sort of like the early time that she's in Algiers, her, her mother actually passes away and um, 
she is shortly after that she's also so this is another part of of why she was a bit sort of deviant and subversive as well is because she was very anti-colonial yes of course so quite soon after her mother passes away she's involved in this riot against the french and um even though she kind of does it under this pseudonym and kind of assumes that maybe nobody will know it's her in disguise in disguise she's also like oh they may well no it's me yeah so she kind of yeah so the she, white lady looking man that's right in the crowd yeah yeah the one that stands out quite a bit so she kind of hightails it back to um geneva for a while um to kind of just you know lay low lay yeah. low for a while hang out and while she's there her um one of her half brothers um he commits suicide which is a bit of a tragedy mm. and then shortly after that her father also dies yeah that's a yeah yeah i like the way you're like yeah that's yeah. a hard time that, yeah um and so she kind of and then she's kind of left penniless because the actual legitimate his actual legitimate family yeah, back I was in russia say, he never married her mother that's so right she doesn't really have a claim that's right and all she's left with is sort of like enough money to kind of pay for her legal costs mm. and then that's it and then everything else goes to the rest of the actual legitimate family yeah so, so she's a penniless writer so right? she's a penniless writer gee that's not a trope at all. That's not a thing that happens. And um, she goes back to Tunisia mm-hmm. and she kind of endeavours to be a writer for a while. Um, but sort of her um, hashish smoking, uh, drunkenness. Alcoholism. Alcoholism makes that kind of difficult. Um, and but so, isn't that how all the best writers of the period did their work? Well, I think that's the myth, but I don't know how well it actually works <laughs> out in practice. So she goes to um, Marseille, where her where Augustine is oh, now, yeah, yeah. and he's recently married. So she goes and hangs out with Brother Augustine for a while. But then while she's there, perhaps you can fill in this bit. You know about this <laughs> well, bit. Well, I heard. So this is the word on the street. Is the word she, on the street about Izzy. Is that she meets this, um, the widow of the Marquis de, de Moray, who was... Daphne de Moria? Yes. She meets she Daphne de Moria. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Who became a Marquess. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. And the, the, apparently the Marquis de Moray was um, murdered by tribesmen in Sahara. Do you know this story? I don't know this story. So, well, apparently she was, um, he, this guy was murdered and there was really no headway being made into an investigation about his murder. And so um, when the, the the widow met Eberhardt, she asked if, because she was familiar with the area, if she would mind going and checking things out and doing <laughs> something. Can you just check things yeah, out? Yeah, doing some investigating. And so she became like a private investigator for a little while. And, of course, this this paid for her passage back, which she was, like, super keen to, get to go back. back. And yeah. she had no money left because of, you know, all the stuff that we've just been talking about. So yeah. she's like, yeah, sure, I'll investigate. And then she got to go back to um, Algeria. And she, then she was hanging out in the desert. But apparently... She actually... Nah, not actually that keen on investigating the murder. Well, this is a common thing for her because <laughs> later on... She's tasked with doing some investigation that she also doesn't do. So <laughs> we will get to that. But so she, so this gets her back to Algeria. Yeah. And now that she's back in Algeria, she also meets the love of her life. 
Slimen. Slaman. Slamine. Slamine. Slaman. 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 Slamine. So Slamine. Slamine. So she meets um, him, and he's actually an Algerian soldier, and they fall madly in love, and they kind of have this fabulous. So this is around about like 1900 now. So this is the turn mm-hmm. of the century. Um, so can you, could you imagine that? Imagine the turn of the century, 1900. Yeah. And now they are having this illicit love affair <sighs> because she's dressing as a man again. And he is a man. Yeah. So it would appear to all and sundry to be um, a straight-out homosexual relationship. And so they've got to keep this quite yes. like, quiet, right? Because Absolutely. they're firstly not married. Secondly, she's not technically Muslim. Thirdly, she's... Dressed as a man. Yeah. And so this is, I would assume, I can only assume that this is not a particularly acceptable relationship. Absolutely. So what they do is they kind of have these like wonderful illicit um, adventures out to the middle of the desert on their horses. They ride out to the dunes. and they, it, Would it be on horses? On horses. Yeah, on horses. Yeah. Um, and with their blankets and, and they, their candles yeah, they, and they, their picnic. Yeah, their picnic with their picnic, their cheese with their camembert <laughs> and their wine. And they lay out um, under the stars and make sandy, sandy love. Because <laughs> um, everyone knows how oh. great sandy love is. <laughs> you get sand in your bits. But um, anyway, so that's what they do. And love will make a way. Love will make it sandy way. Even <laughs> in the sand, love will make a way. And... So this carries on for a while and they're traveling around together. And at this point in time, there's an attempt made on Izzy's life. Yeah, because she... Okay, so she had joined a Sufi brotherhood? Correct, yes. So um, Slaman as well. I want to say Slaman. Okay. Slamin, Slaman. Please forgive us for our Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that is actually your name. Lady if you're listening and it happens to be your name and we just cannot say it. Um, he... Yeah, I know, we're terrible. He's actually part of a Sufi brotherhood um, called the Kadriya. Mm-hmm. And she joins the brotherhood as well. Um, Which, again, is this... Okay, so Sufi brotherhood, what does this entail? Um, so it entails being a man, not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a brother? Being a, a, a brother, yeah. yeah. A brother from another mother. Yeah. So there's... The kind of the wonderful thing about this as well is that she, because she's penniless, the brotherhood is sort of about hospitality too. Yeah. So it means that she can kind of turn up on the doorstep of any other member of the brotherhood, and they have to take her in and offer her hospitality. So which she kind of needs. Yes, which she does need. But again, this is her couch surfing deal, right? It is. It's totally couch surfing. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of what actually being a member of the Brotherhood entails, some kind of like... You have to host a couch surfer yeah, as that's well as ish. Like be a couch surfer. Yeah, Otherwise they don't let you join. And you have to be listed on the internet Yeah, in order to do that. So it's part of... And you have to rate each other. Yeah, yeah. You have to have reviews. at least five stars. At yeah. least. Isn't that the most amount you can get? Probably. Probably. It's yeah. Well, that's right. I have to have at least three and a half to four stars. Yeah. Um, but obviously not because it's like 18, 19, 1900s. So we've totally gone off topic. <laughs> so they're traveling around together and um, they're stopped by the side of the road and Isabel's kind of like hunched over reading some letters and suddenly there's an, a blow to the back of her head. 
Bam. Thwack. Thwack. A thwack to the back of her head. And she's been attacked by a man with a saber. Which I find ridiculous because if you have a saber, like it's a it's a saber. You don't thwack people with sabers. You s- <laughs> cut up yeah, people with sabers. I suppose like, the standard thing done with a saber is I feel is like stabby. he can't have been that committed to her murder if he's not going to use his saber yeah. in the correct fashion. That's right. Or perhaps he doesn't know... Perhaps he doesn't understand Maybe, the but key way in which a saber is used. I feel like if you're going to do that, you probably know. Yeah, possibly. They're really well, all new. So, he's, um, so his name's Abdullah, and his um, motives are actually never really made entirely clear. So he is arrested and charged, and when Isabel has to appear in court... Um, about the whole ordeal. Uh, Slayman. Slayman. I'm just going with Slayman now. Slayman. Slayman. That's nowhere near. Slayman. Slaman. 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 So much yelling. Slaman. Um, he actually kind of pleads with Isabel to dress as a woman for the yeah. court appearances. As a white European woman? Yes. And he wants to send away to Europe and have some lovely European dresses sent back. Yeah. Because he to feels. To play like, on the whole, yeah. like. Yeah. Yep. Defense, like, is it just to play on the defenseless white woman? Yep. and that it will sort of, you know, put her in good stead. And victim. especially because it's basically, it's the colonial French court as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but she refuses to do this. And she um, says she'll only appear in court as her standard self, not mm. as this kind of dressed up So figure. it kind of is an identity thing as well. Like, yeah, we're yeah. saying that she doesn't necessarily identify as being... A man for like gender can, you know, she's not in the, she doesn't, wasn't born believing she was in the wrong body. It is a convenience thing, but at the same time, it's become an assumed identity. It's an identity. It's yeah. like, it's her public persona. Yeah, or absolutely. Yeah. And I, I actually don't even necessarily think it's her public persona. It's so just, it's, it's just the identity that she has chosen is different. <laughs> yeah. It's not... Yeah, I guess it's not the European standard norm. Yeah, um, yeah. And that has, I suppose, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think there's just question. total kind of abandonment of these notions and her fluidity is, is actually really interesting. And the fact that so many people around her are just willing to accept this fluidity and not question yeah. it at all and have no real hang-ups about it. I know. Everyone's really weird, yeah. like, for the yeah. 1890s, So she, I mean, she is, she is definitely perceived as a strange kind of threat as well because what happens is um, after the, the court appearance where um, her attacker is sentenced quite severely and she actually kind of appeals for his sentence to be sort of diminished, um, which is yeah, great. because we very don't, forgiving. We don't know if he attacked her because he thinks that she's subverting, like... That's right. So That she is... Because it could be any number of things. It could be her subversion of gender. It could be, her like, her, um, a, you know, claiming to be Muslim and not yeah. really being Muslim and not practising... Sort of seeing her as a bit of a... Degenerate, yeah, yeah. But also, Abdullah was from sort of a rival Sufi brotherhood. So as it well. could just so be a brotherhood. Could, could be, be just a gang war. Could be gang wars. That's right. So gang wars, <laughs> Sufi brotherhood gang wars, um, which I'm sure are actually a thing. <laughs> so she, after this, as well, the the sort of French government or the the ruling French colonial government at the time, 
um, decides that she's just too much of a threat because she's too much a part of the local society and culture. Um, and she has all of these pesky anti-colonial views, right? She does. She totally does. And she's been writing back to journals in Paris as well this whole time, making a little bit of money out of sending her money back to Parisian journals about life in North Africa. And how dare she humanise the experience That's right. of Absolutely. You know, yep. living there. And so They're they... They're not the just, other. They have people. That's They're right. They have, they have feelings. <laughs> they have lives. So she gets sent away she gets kicked out of Algeria and she has to go back to Marseille to live with her brother again with Augustine so while she's there um she is missing Slimane Slimane um who is the love of her life he's the love of her life so the only way really for her to get back into the country and for them to be together is for them to get married Mm. because if she can marry him then she'll get citizenship and she'll be able to go back. I wonder how she felt about marriage. She seems to throw off all other kinds of conventions. So mm. I wonder if there was a bit of resistance on her behalf in like, ugh, I have to get married. Well, interestingly, for the actual wedding, she wears a dress and she also wears a wig. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's really like playing into like, no, I need to look feminine. Yeah. So she, because she's, she's shaved her head. Her head is typically shaved. And then, so for the wedding, she just dons a wig and a dress. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And again, this kind of idea of fluidity that she seems to be really quite comfortable with. Yeah. She wouldn't do it for the court, but she'll do it. But but I guess that's the whole thing. It's on her terms for her wedding, isn't it? that's right. And in court, it wasn't on her terms. Yeah. Yeah. And in the wedding, she's choosing a position. Yeah, that's right. She's choosing to become a wife. Yeah. She's not like, I know that if I appear in court as a woman, that's going to come with all of this other feminine baggage. That's right. And in my wedding, I want to be a woman because I want to be this role of a a wife. And also there's a lot she can say standing in court as a man that she can't say standing in court as a woman. Yeah, so really I think it it seems, and I don't probably know enough about her really, but it seems to be a lot to do with how she can negotiate power. Yeah, authority. That's right. And having had that instilled in her since she was a girl as well from her father, that I guess it does play into... Um, ways that she can rebel against authority or how she can position herself against authority. Yeah, it's just different ways of being able to speak and have a voice. Absolutely. So women have all of these devious ways of having voice. That's right. Whether they're speaking through the dead and pretending to be ghosts or whether they're donning men's costumes. Mm, Cunning cunning things, aren't we? Yes, yes, yes. So she... Um, so she gets married and she can go back to Algeria. Hooray. Yay. Wonderful. And um, while she's there, she comes to sort of the attention of a uh, French general. So um, here's another name that I don't know how to say. General Hubert Laerty? Laerty? Laertes. Laertes. Yes, Laertes. General Laertes. Yeah, that's totally who it is. Yeah. Um, and because of her sort of ability to move around and um, 
sort of cross borders as well. And she can also go into Morocco where um, the military can't go at this stage as well. He kind of assigns her as, or brings her on board as a bit of a spy uh-huh. for the French military. Now I've heard that she's not a particularly good, and if we're going to take her career as a private inge- investigator, yeah. as, as anything to go by, She's not a very good spy. She's an awful spy. She's a terrible spy. Because she's, she's really also happy. really anti-colonial. She is. And her heart is not in it no. at all. <laughs> um, she's not interested in being a spy. But she's friends with all of these people. She is. So she kind They're of really family. Doesn't, she doesn't report that much useful stuff. <laughs> <laughs> she's not very, she's but not very helpful so, at all. But I imagine that she's happily pocketing the French coin. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. So, but the other thing that sort of plays into this as well, into her reluctance to to be a french spy is the fact that her health is deteriorating rapidly oh because of all of the drinking yeah and yeah. she's smoking yeah absolutely and, and also all of the years of kind sex. of like um yeah all the june sex <laughs> the june sex will do it to you definitely um it's gonna weather your skin it is but that actually makes me think and of age like, you prematurely yeah, i know that's kind of brought up more images of like june sex like as in like <laughs> as in june yeah as in like june the, the film and the book the kind of that sort of sex <laughs> which is a different kind of sex and like sting anyway um so yeah all that june sex will really do it to you and also at this stage um Remember as well, there's been quite a few years of sort of like malnutrition, basically. Oh, yeah, because she's so poor. Because she's so poor and she's kind of just had to rely on the kindness of strangers in a very sort of um, uh, streetcar named Desire kind of way. (laughs) So she she's also lost a lot of teeth by this stage as well. She's she's not in a good way. Oh, Isabel. Poor Isabel. So she's um, so this kind of, I think, plays into her lack of um goodness at being a spy and also my lack of goodness of saying words because <laughs> you also have no teeth because i also have no teeth from all this Sand rum drinking skin. um so by this stage life is probably not the greatest um for isabel anyway and we get to um sort of october of 1904 and um she's now 27 yeah so that's a portentous sort of fatalistic age yeah and speaking of fatalism she's kind of become as a writer at this stage she's become quite fatalistic in her writing as well Mm. and there's a lot of writing that she has um that's questioning and um lost and she writes about her inability to write as well and it's interesting because she's actually a really beautiful writer isn't she she is she is and a lot of what she writes is not necessarily very narrative driven. It's more observations on place and people and atmosphere, yeah. and it's gorgeous. Her prose, yeah, gorgeous. I've read some. It is it like it's stunning. Yeah, stuff. So it's not like she doesn't have the skills to do it. Yeah, but I suppose along with her failing health, um, it probably doesn't help one's sort of self worth. Mm. I guess yeah. sense of abilities. So. She becomes, um, yeah, sort of sicker and sicker and sicker. But being 27, as she is, um, it means that she's not long for the world. She's going to join the club. Because we know what happens to people at 27. She's a club founder. She's a club founder. And she's with her husband in the desert when there's a flash flood. Which seems crazy, but actually when you think about it, you're like, if there's going to be a flash flood... Anywhere the desert seems like a bad place because I can't imagine they like 
they're probably not as well equipped to deal with rain well and a lot of the houses like a lot of the yeah that's right and a lot of the places are basically kind of made out of the earth yeah anyway and it's like when it rains it pours it rains that's right and so i have um sort of slaman's accounts of what happens and which i can read to you please so he says we were on the balcony of my room on the first floor Suddenly, there was a roar like a procession of wagons. It came nearer. I didn't understand. The weather was calm. There was no rain, no storm. In a minute, the water came down the riverbed, rising up like a wall, running like a galloping horse, at least two metres high, dragging along trees, furniture, bodies of animals and men. I saw the danger and we fled. The torrent caught us up in it. How did I get out? I have no idea. My wife was carried away. Yeah. So, after the flood... Um, General Laertes, as we shall call him, um, sort of ordered a a search and um, a search party to kind of go through the rubble, and they discovered a man's body under the beams of a house. But of course, when they removed the body, it was not a man. It's dear old Izzy. But it was Izzy, and that is how Izzy left the world Aww. at the tender age of twenty-seven. That's really sad. Like, because you think. And yeah, she was going through this period of, of declining health. And I, that's probably has a lot to do with also her declining sense of being able to write. Yeah. But I mean, think about what she had achieved by that age and how much more she could have given had she lived longer. 27 is so young. Mm. And particularly because of the fact that she was such an influential like anti-colonial voice yeah we really one of the and some some people like attribute her with with the decolonization movement in yeah. North africa right yeah. yeah so i mean yeah what are, what else that's the thing when people who are this brilliant die so young you kind of always are left with this like gaping hole of what isn't here sure but what it also does is it plays into a mythology Oh, yeah. And um, what Laertes goes and does (laughs) is um, he sort of appoints himself as the executor of um, all of Isabel's work. Never mind her husband. No, no, no. He sort of just decides that he's in charge. So he kind of goes through um, all of her things and finds bits and pieces and manuscripts and he begins publishing her work um, posthumously and sort of reaping the rewards from that. And... um, so there's quite there are a few books um, Isabel Eberhardt has published, um, and In the Shadow of Islam is perhaps one of her most famous ones, mm. and that was the first one that he put together and had published. And so when he edited these, I mean, do you think that he kind of kept the spirit of Isabel, or did he, you know, because he's a French man, and if she's has this kind of subversive voice do you think that he edited them in a way that disguises that or do you think that he's really true to her writing i think what he publishes is mainly sort of true to her writing but what he does do is he definitely plays into this sort of romanticism of the nomad and the romanticism of the life that she led and i mean the life that she led is the life that she led he doesn't necessarily make it up but he really taps into that sort of mythology of the way that she led her life and um a lot of i I suppose a lot of what is chosen to be published reflects that as well yeah but i think also there's something quite um sort of poetic again and this is part of the myth too poetic in the fact that 
Isabel died in the very sort of environment that she adored so much and that she wrote about so much that ultimately that was also her demise as well so it kind of of seems a bit apt it seems quite fitting really doesn't it yeah Yeah. but so it's i suppose it's it's quite a sad ending really why did i laugh at that there's no reason to laugh at that but it is it is a sad ending I think it is a sad thing because <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the writing that doesn't exist because she died. But I mean, at least I don't know. She is a voice. She is that voice of the wanderer, and she is the mythologized vagabond. Yeah. Yes. And she stands for so much about like why people want to explore because I feel like she, as much as uh, you know, it's it's kind of tricky to navigate these things, but it feels like she was like really authentically committed to experiencing this place and this culture. Um, not as an outsider, not as somebody who was othering. Yeah. Not as an observer or like an ethnographer. Yeah. But Mm. as somebody who was, who genuinely wanted to grow herself and Mm. genuinely wanted to learn and wanted to expand her experience of the world. Yeah. By having these kind of cross-cultural experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And in her lifetime, she did succeed in doing that. Yeah. And I guess testament to that is the fact that people just accepted her. Yeah, which I think is really one of the most incredible things about this is is her... Oh, there is so much that's incredible about her. There's her, her writing voice. Mm. Like, her voice is stunning. Her observations are incredible. Her fluidity in the world and her ability to navigate so many different kind of identities and mm. cultures and just, just yeah, I don't know. I think she's fast. I just think that she's a fascinating person. She's great. She is. I got so angry about that. She's great. <laughs> there's there's a film. A film was made of her life. Um, I don't know, like in the 80s or 90s. I've never seen it. Mm. Um, so I... I can't comment on it. I just know it exists. If anybody knows where I can find a copy of it, that would be wonderful. You can write. You could write to us on our on our website oh, and yeah. let us know. You can leave a comment where I can find the film. Deviantwomenpodcast dot com. Yeah, let me know if anyone has a copy of it. Oh yeah, if you have a copy of it, <laughs> I really want to see it. It would be great. Yeah. But I think that's probably a good point to wrap yeah, it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up there. Yeah, fantastic. She's a fascinating, amazing woman. Yeah. Um, you can find a lot of her work. You can buy some of those books. I just, I'm sure. I just ordered one. Excellent. I just ordered Wonderful. Shadow of, of Islam. In the Shadow of Islam. Yep. yep. I'm pretty sure Laertes isn't getting royalties <laughs> anymore, so no. you can feel all right about that. Awesome. Wonderful. All right. And so um, who shall we be talking about next week? So next week, so we've done two uh, historical women mm-hmm. this thus far. Next week, we're going to uh, dip our toes into the world of fiction. Yay! And I think we've given a slight... Not the very, rum reference. The rum reference. That's not going to help anyone at all, I don't think. Well, it's quite vague. Yeah. Geographically, it no, it still doesn't help. <laughs> Rare rum is famous. Yeah. It's not going to help anyone. So. Um, basically, this is a woman who, um, who exists in a couple of different incarnations. Absolutely. We're talking about two of them. That's, that's good enough. Should we just leave it there? Yeah. She's from the same period. Oh, she's a little bit earlier, actually. Half a century earlier. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, let's leave it at that. That's, it. Oh, that's all you need so to know. So join us next week for some fiction. 
get on board. It's going to be great. And we'll see you then. See you then. Thanks. Bye.